one. We're right at the 145 mark, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. For those of you who are just coming in or missed it, there's uh, a handout and an evaluation sheet in the back, so please make sure to pick up one of those. The handout will be helpful to follow along with as we go through the presentation. Um, so welcome, this is Scaling Best Practices to Fit Your Organization. This is a Field Service Alliance tip session. Um, and I will do a quick introduction to Field Service Alliance and then I will introduce us up here. So the Field Service Alliance um, is an affinity group of ASLH and it is a group of people who work one-on-one -on -one with institutions to help um, help you guys become better institutions. So we all, three of us, sort of have different areas of expertise, which we, you become very apparent as we go through the presentation, um, but just sort of highlights the diversity of um, how field service how field service offices can help you in a lot of different ways. If, you have, if you're having a problem with collections care, there's somebody there who can come in and help. If you're having a problem with fundraising, we have people who can, can help out and you can, um, once the ASLH website is totally up and running, we will have a page on the website so you can check, check out where your local office might be and get in touch with some of us. Um, so, for quick introductions, my name is Samantha Forsco, and I am actually the new chair of the Field Service Alliance, so also happy to answer questions about that as well. Um, my regular day position is um, the preservation specialist at the Conservation Center for Art and Historic Artifacts. So my area of expertise is collections care. Um, and uh, we're in Philadelphia, where I hope everybody will be next year for the conference. And I'm going to pass it over to my co-presenters. Hi, I'm Amy Romiller, and I am a local history services coordinator at the Ohio History Connection in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, and my areas of expertise for this session are programming and marketing. And I'm also the secretary of the Field Services Alliance. And I'm Jeanette Rooney. I'm the Assistant Director for Local History Services at the Indiana Historical Society in Indianapolis. Um, I'll be talking a little bit about fundraising during this session. And she's the former chair. Yes. <laughs> um, so just really quick, um, we, what we'll be covering in this session is kind of how to take those big projects big ideas um, that you often hear about in you know, workshops, webinars, and how you can actually use them and make them work for your own institution. We are not all the Met, we are not all um, you know, the National Archives, but how do we still make some of these ideas work? Um, so that's what we are going to be kind of talking about. We're gonna go through the theory of how to scale, um, the process of how to scale, and then we're of course, going to give you some examples from our day-to-day -day work, um, but we're going to be spending a lot of the session actually doing some of this yourself. Um, we're going to be giving you some examples. We have some example museums that you will all work at for the for the um, example, and you'll actually get to practice some of this before before you have to go home and do it for real. So um, we wanted to make sure that this, as with all Field Service Alliance tip sessions, we try to make it really practical, hands-on, so it's stuff you can use for real, in your institutions, <clears throat> excuse me. So without further ado, I'm going to pass it over to Amy and Jeanette to tell us a little bit about the theory and process. So when we first started talking about this session and scalability, we definitely wanted to talk about the process of scaling things down uh, because we've all been in the position at conferences of hearing about all of the really great, fantastic ideas that other places are doing and been faced with the struggle of how do I twist this in a way that 
fits or makes sense for my organization. Um, but when we started digging into the theory of scalability, we discovered that most people, when they talk about scaling, only really talk about scaling up. And in most cases, we need to talk about scaling down, uh, which meant that we got to come up with our own definition. So for purposes of this session, scaling, up or down, is adapting successful policies, programs, and projects from different places, big or small, in a way that works for you and your institution, in a way that lets you get across that same big idea, but in a way um, that, reach it, that utilizes your resources to let that idea reach a bigger number of people. Another question is, is every project, is every program, is every big idea scalable? Um, so here are some things to consider if you're thinking about adapting a big idea to make sure that it will actually scale in a way that works for you. Um, and the first thing is, is it from a reputable organization that has a history of doing good things and doing them well? Make sure that it has happened or is proven to have good results. Um, nobody really wants to test another untested idea. Make sure that you have some kind of proof that it has worked. Uh, make sure that it meets a need of your institution. There are all kinds of awesome things happening everywhere, um, but if they don't meet a need for your specific place, it may or may not be worth adapting. Also make sure that they are implementing best practices, and we will talk a lot about best practices when we get to the example section. It's also important to make sure that you're um, keeping it simple, that the idea is simple and easy to implement so that you're not sinking a lot of time, resources, money, effort uh, into something that may or may not pay off. Make sure it's relevant to your mission. I hope that goes without saying, but it, it should fit. Uh, and make sure that it is testable or that it can be reversed or walked back if when you, when you have piloted your, your idea, um, if it's not working for you, make sure that it's not a big deal to undo it. Okay. All right, so now that Amy's talked a little bit a little about the theory of scaling, we're gonna get into the process. So a couple of things to remember. Um, for one thing, it's about finding the essential details in the thing that you want to scale from, and then adapting those to what works best for your organization. So it's also about being creative and then finding new ways to use your resources and what you have at hand. And this is something that we know small museums are really good at. You're really good at being creative, um, being agile, being able to respond to things and use your resources the best way possible. So you can do a lot of these things that bigger organizations or large museums could learn from as well. So one thing to remember is that while the process of scaling that we're gonna talk about today is mainly focusing on scaling larger pro projects and programs and best practices um, down to smaller organizations size, um, the general principles can be used in many different ways and across um, all different sizes of organizations. So you should all have a copy of the worksheet. If not, there are a few copies in the back and we'll be handing, I've got plenty of extras so we can hand some out later. Um, we're going to come back to it um, a little bit later in the session as Samantha mentioned um, when we work through our exercise. So 
the process, um, the first thing, like, like Amy just mentioned, you have to identify what it is. So think about whether it's, it's scalable. So the first thing is, yes, just describe where it, what it is. What, what is it exactly that you want to scale? Where did you see it? Where did you learn about it? Then you want to think through why you want to scale it for your organization. So ask yourself questions such as, what purpose does it serve? Um, what does it do in its original context? Um, what is its outcome and in impact? What, what effect is it having in its, in its current place? Um, for example, if it's an exhibit, you know, what, what impact is it having? So what need is it fulfilling? Why is it important? And then think about what it could do for your own organization and your audience. So why is it something you would want to adapt for your use? And then once you've thought about those things, you want to examine it a little bit more closely. So break it down into its pieces and parts. So you want to take a really close, in-depth look. What are the important details? How was it created? How was it made? I know um, most museum folks, whenever we go and visit other museums, the first thing we do when we see exhibits is look at, oh, how did they mount that on the wall? Or you know, how did they create that label? Or how did they do this? So it, it's, it's something that's already ingrained in us to, to go and look at those details. So that's what you're doing, is you're taking a really close look at how they did it. And then how does it work? So also the same thing. So how does it function? Once you've done that, so then you want to think about what of those parts can you take and adapt for your own use? So this is where you get to get creative. In those details, what can you do with your resources? Are there parts that would work better for your organization? Are there parts that you can leave out that wouldn't work well? Do you see things that could be done in a slightly different way according to what, what's available to you? And then are there ways that you can improve upon it? Are there things that you could do in a different way to maybe um, get across to your audience in a different way? And then this is, again, this is where you have to know what your resources are and know what's available out there and then kind of get creative what, with what you have. So the last thing you want to do then is lay out a plan for what you're going to do to make it happen. So once you've determined what it is that you want to do, you need to plan your next steps. So think about who's going to be in charge. I know in, in most small museums, it's probably going to be you, but do you want to have folks from your board involved? Do you want to have a committee involved? Think about those things ahead of time. What resources do you need? Again, this is a good place with this worksheet, you can kind of lay out what all those different resources. Do you need money? Do you need time? Do you need staff? Do you need volunteers? What resources do you need? And then what's your timeline? Figure out what's your timeline to make whatever this project or big idea or um, best practice, what, what do you need to put it into place? And then you lay it out in your pieces of parts and you're ready to go. So um, now what we're going to do is, like Samantha mentioned, we're going to get into some specific, specific examples and tips um, that you can use for scaling um, all kinds of different best practices and projects. Great. So we're going to go through a couple of examples of uh, in, in kind of each of our different areas of expertise about best practice recommendations or big ideas or things like that that we have seen uh, successfully scaled um, in sort of both directions. Uh, I will show you how you know how you can take those ideas and, and make them a little bit 
uh, scale them down, and then what those next steps might be if you're already kind of a rock star and you're, you're meeting that best practice recommendation. That's something I would really like to encourage you guys as well. Just because you're meeting you know, the bare minimum best practice doesn't mean you're done. There's still more you can do. So um, we'll talk about that as well. So the first one I wanted to start with uh, is an having an emergency plan. I think it's really sort of forefront in a lot of people's minds um, as of late with the sort of increased uh, hurricane activity and things that, wildfires, things that we've been seeing. Um, and on top of that, it is one of those core documents that you need for AAM accreditation. And it's a really tough one to get. It's really long and complicated, and there's a lot that needs to be done with it. And as you can see, I have listed the AAM requirements on what makes a good emergency plan. So this can seem, you know, really overwhelming. But let's think about what is what is what is it you're actually trying to do with an emergency plan. The real the real point of what you're trying to do. If we're looking, we're using that worksheet. We're thinking about what those details might be. We're trying to make sure we can all communicate during an emergency. We're trying to make sure we have vendors picked out ahead of time. Um, and we're trying to make sure we have just those really immediate responses. So to scale, scale this down a little bit, you might want to start with something like the pocket response plan. Has anyone used one of those before? Yeah, um, I have a couple samples up here if you want to see one um, later. This was something that was put out by the Council of State Archivists a few years ago. Um, so you can go on their website and get a, a free downloadable template that has sort of all of the, you know, who is your main contacts, who are your vendors, here are your first three steps in a disaster. Um, you'll obviously want to customize it to your institution, but it's a little one sheet. It can be a really great way to getting those basic ideas and details done. Um, there's also other things you can do. I've just put a couple of other tips about things I've done that have been kind of low cost, low um, resource intensive, low energy sort of things that you can do to help improve emergency response and preparedness in general, such as participating in your sort of local events that are already happening. You can get ready-made supply packs ready to go. You don't even have, you, you know, if you would like to supplement them and make them more intense, you are you're totally welcome, but those are sort of the basic things to that emergency plan, right? Um, looking in the other direction, what could you do? If you already have an emergency plan and you already keep it up to, you know, updated every year, what are your next steps in that? Um, holding annual all staff training. I have pictures here. This is from the University of California, San Diego, um, their library. They have these really intense day-long trainings. Um, so total rock stars, right? I'm not saying this is for everyone. This is because they've already met that best practice, so they're doing the next step. Um, they do these day-long trainings. They actually go through and drape sheets over stacks. Um, they have these really great supply kits that they have made that's really customized to their needs. So it goes both directions on that. Um, my next, next example. And sort of a, a, a little bit, a little bit less than that, still related to the collections care area. Um, the best practice that we always see, right, is you need the storage furniture that's made out of all metal. Some of us, we're using this wooden shelf because that's what we have, right? Um, that doesn't mean that we have to have, that's terrible, right? How can you make that work? What is the main point of having the all metal, powder coated metal storage? The main point of that is that it's not off-gassing anything. Um, 
that it, uh, you know, is going to be able to support the weight of your artifacts. So what can you do that meets those needs? Um, this is a really great resource. The National Park Service has um, some safe uh, and harmful materials that you use in ex exhibitions. So you could, in theory, be making your exhibition furniture out of stuff as well. And I know it's hard to read there, but you can go online, check that out, and it'll show you, you know, how long it takes fruit of the wood to off-gas. So you can just make sure it's going and off-gassing somewhere else. If you have a really old old storage furniture might already have off-gassed, um, so you might be okay. There's also little things like lay, if you're trying to prevent the off-gassing, right, can lay down a, a piece of blue board to add a barrier layer. So there's little things that you can do that are still meeting those needs that that, that all, all um, powder-coated metal storage furniture is meeting. Um, if you want to, oh, and then I have to, of course, point out Pearl, my cat in the box there. Uh, if you can't do any of that, put things in boxes, right? That's a great barrier layer um, between the artifact and, and whatever is happening in the storage environment. That can be hard in itself to meet, getting all these storage boxes, um, storage boxes around, but it's something to uh, consider. Um, if you are already doing that, you have great metal furniture, what are the next steps? This one's probably easy for you guys, right? You would have custom-made stuff that fits perfectly into your, into your spaces, it's all designed for you. Um, I, I put that up, I know most of us probably know, know that, right, already, but I just wanted to put it up there to illustrate that it goes both directions, right? Um, so another best practice that I often see people really struggling with, especially in small museums, is exhibitions should be rotated every six weeks. Who is the staff for that, right? That's crazy. So what can we do instead? Um, the Sackler Gallery and Freer Gallery of Art have this really awesome resource um, that have the light duration guidelines of exhibited artwork. So if you are having a hard time with all the, you have a really you know paper, textile heavy, uh, exhibition, maybe those aren't the exhibitions you should be um, focusing on. Maybe you should be focusing on the things that aren't as sensitive to light. So you're going to have a bunch of metals or a bunch of, um, you know, stone artifacts, things like that that are on display instead. So thinking really carefully about that exhibition schedule, those exhibition policies, how things are selected for exhibition is how you can scale that recommendation down. There's also things, so something I've seen really effective with books in particular, those are very light sensitive. It's really hard to get those cradles changed if you're going to change out the books, but what if you just flip the page every six weeks, right? Much lower way to, to be meeting that recommendation and that best practice. Um, of course, if you're scaling it up or going on to the next step, sorry, <laughs> sorry, um, you know, you would have a really, you know, robust exhibition schedule in which you are changing out all of your exhibitions, fully changing everything um, every three, three, or excuse me, six weeks, three weeks, whoa, um, and you're, you know, measuring light exposure to your artifacts. Um, so those, those are my uh, best practice examples for collections care. And I believe we have some other examples now from our marketing, programming, and fundraising side. All right, so up next is programming. Um, and fundamentally, we all hope that all of our programs are meaningful and engaging to our audiences. Um, so in order to create these meaningful, engaging programs, we all have to know who our audience is, who is coming, who do we want to come, what are those people interested in? What are they concerned about? What are they talking about? What do they need? 
And when we're doing the planning, uh, we should make sure that people from those audiences and those communities are involved in the planning process as much as is possible, um, that you're involving your own staff in planning, so you're not just necessarily springing them on you know, your core docent volunteers, that they know what you're up to, that they have a voice in some of the planning processes, um, and that you're involving any experts <coughs> and making sure that you're using recent historical scholarship um, and then it's also important to make sure that any programming or exhibit content is presented using a variety of different techniques. Um, I'm a visual learner, so I will read every single label you put up, um, but if you sit and lecture to me, I'm probably not gonna remember it as well. So making sure that you're appealing to all different learning styles. And if you have found an idea for a program that you would like to scale down, um, for instance, one of the many hats that I wear in my local history department is the uh, statewide World War I Centennial Coordinator. Um, so, one of the things um, that we have been encouraging people to do if they want to in, uh, commemorate the centennial of World War I is to take that idea and use it to inform any existing programming that places are already doing. Lots of places have monthly speaker series, um, so having those speakers come in and talk about World War I topics, you're already doing it, you're not expending any new resources on it, it's just making it fit that particular community need or interest. Uh, another really cool thing to do is to use passive programming that doesn't involve any staff time. Um, this picture is actually from something called the Ohio Poppy Project where we provide materials, templates, and explanation of why the poppy is important to World War I. Once you set that out on a table with some information and some crayons, you are good to go. For the rest of the time it's up, you just have to make sure that there's stuff on the table that people can use. You don't need to devote a lot of staff time, it's pretty cheap. If you wanna blow it up bigger, you can, but you can just do it with a table. And then finally, um, to make sure that you're using pre-existing resources and templates. Like stealing other places' ideas is the best thing ever. I do it all the time. The poppy idea is something I blatantly stole from Kentucky. <laughs> so you never have to reinvent the wheel. You can just go out and see what other places are doing um, and ask them for their resources or templates. We're all really nice people we all wanna share. And then if you're ready to take the next steps up, um, you can conduct your own original research into your collections, or if you have an idea for a program that you can't find an example of, you can create it. Um, you can make sure that you're adhering to any applicable accessibility standards. Um, if you know you're doing a school program for kids with different learning styles, um, and you know that some of them struggle with reading, that maybe you adapt the text into something that has more pictures, that kind of thing. Uh, or you can identify a new audience, maybe a segment of your community that you're not serving, and then you can spend some time researching and creating programming to serve that audience. So that's programming, and once you've created it, you wanna market it and get people to come. So in this case, the marketing best practice we're gonna talk about um, is that you should promote your activities, but you should do it in a targeted way so that you're not sending teachers necessarily the same information that you're sending your donors because those are two different interest groups. Um, so in this case, if you're doing this well, you wanna make sure that you're using a lot of different channels to reach different groups, um, that you're 
you have a mailing list and you update it fairly frequently, uh, that you can categorize and sort your list by different constituents or groups that you want to appeal to, um, and then once you know what groups people are in, that you're sending them information that targets them specifically. Uh, and for programming, I hope you saw that in scaling down, you can scale down in some cases the amount of effort that you can put into a program. Um, unfortunately for this particular best practice, the amount of work is the same. You're, you're gonna put in some work to be able to target your audience, but the tools are different. Uh, so if you wanna scale down, Excel or Google Sheets does this for you. You just have to put in the time to create it. Um, when you're doing this, you should make sure that like in Excel, you have a column that says what group these people are part of, what are, is this contact a major donor, are they a teacher, are they a member, did they just sign up for your newsletter because they think you're awesome. Um, and then just make sure that you know how to sort that list by different groups. And then you can use, there's a lot of free mail software out there now, something like MailChimp. If you upload your um, mailing list into MailChimp, it'll automatically, you can tell it to segment different groups for you and then you've just taken care of it. Once you've done that and you have a little bit more resources to spare, you can do something like invest in a big fancy constituent relationship management software, a CRM, which lets you track all kinds of information in one place um, and you can make sure that you're using different platforms to reach different audiences. So you're using social media in a way different than you're using your newsletter, in a way different than you're using your website, in a way that different than you might be using any hard copy sources. Okay, so our scalable best practice for fundraising is about an annual fund program. Now, I would imagine that probably most, if not all, of you have some sort of annual fund activities that you're doing right now. Um, but we're going to kind of run through it and then run through some ideas for scalable um, best practices for that. So um, this is something that all museums should be doing, but it involves a lot of different aspects. So um, we're gonna talk about some of the larger overarching ideas and then we'll get into the scalable. So first off, an annual fund is an ongoing fundraising effort that raises unrestricted funds. So unrestricted funds can be used for programs, exhibits, staffing to keep the lights on, pretty much anything you need to do to keep your museum going. So that's the really nice part about um, maintaining an annual fund program. Another primary aspect is that an annual fund is about building relationships. So this is where you steward potential volunteers, your board members, longtime supporters for your organization. You do this by really showing the impact of the gifts that you receive and continually educating your donors and your audience about what your museum does and what your impact is and why you're important to your community. So this can be done as a part of your annual appeal um, through your events. You can do this through your website, social media, direct mail, um, in-person meetings, and more. It's, it's basically a conglomerate of a lot of different aspects that form your annual fund. The other thing to remember is that an annual fund re requires having a really good tracking. Um, so you need to be able to plan, you need to be able to track your donor donors and then maintain those good relationships. 
So for example, a very large institution might have a department of development staff that takes care of all these different facets. Um, they probably have an expensive CRM, like, like Amy just mentioned. Um, they probably have a multifaceted online approach with social media. Um, they probably have a de dedicated web page with online giving, um, all these different things. So what aspects of this could you scale for your institution? Well, again, when we talked about how to scale, one of the things that we talked about was finding those key points. So the two key points for a fundraising annual fund program is maintaining those relationships and then um, ongoing fundraising. So that's where you really wanna focus your attention on, on those two aspects. So I would say start by creating a plan and a calendar for your organization um, to use for your annual fund. So determine when you're going to do an annual appeal, when you're going to have your events or fundraisers, um, and then any of the processes, people involved, things like that, get, the, get all that down on paper and create a plan for it. And then if you haven't done it already, set up a tracking system for your donors. Um, you don't have to have that expensive CRM, like Amy mentioned, um, Google Docs worksheets, um, Microsoft Excel or Access, um, or if you have PassPerfect, you can do some of this through PassPerfect. Um, that's a really good way of getting started. Um, I would caution against, um, with any of those methods, um, retaining any personal information, such as credit card numbers or social, social securities or anything like that. Um, but it's a good way to tr keep track of who's donating, what your relationships are, and, and who your audience is. Um, make sure that your board is a primary part of your fundraising um, team. They should be helping to build and maintain those relationships with your community. So they could host an event at their home, um, to help raise awareness. If they're really well known in the community, um, they can add their name to a peer-to-peer -peer, um, appeal. Ask them to make thank you calls after you get a donation. And then try soliciting the board to match donations. Then also use your social media platforms to build awareness. You don't have to be on all the platforms. Maybe Facebook is the right thing for your audience. Um, you can show your impact through social media. So um, make sure that you're showing how people's gifts are impacting your community and how your organization is impacting your community. The other thing that you really want to think about is having an online giving option. Um, you can use a platform such as Fundly or PayPal, um, both of them will take a small percentage, um, but a large, large percentage of people now donate only online. And so it's really nice to have um, that account set up. And then you can link to it through your social media. You can have a donate button on your Facebook page. You can have the donate button on your website. Um, so you can use it all kinds of places. And then make sure you're utilizing your volunteers. Your volunteers are there because they believe in what you do and they believe in your mission and they're your best advocates. So they can help you write your um, fundraising appeal letters. They can write a personal note on it if they know the person in your community. So make sure you're taking advantage of, of your volunteers with that. And then the final tip would be to create a signature fundraising event. I bet probably most of you already do this. Um, if you do a repeat signature event and your community knows that this is to raise funds for your organization, that can help, you can create sort of an ongoing um, process with that that your community will get to know. So once you have all these things in place, what are sort of the next step items you could do? 
Um, for one thing, make sure that you continue to show the impact of past gifts to your organization. So this is where you can create some impact statements. You can really show where that money is going and what effect it is having. So for example, you could say, your gifts in 2018 helped us bring three more school groups than we did, than we were able to the year before. And then keep building and nurturing those relationships with your community members. This can take a lot of time. It varies, on your, it varies based on your organization and also based on the community. But keep building and nurturing those relationships. Create a dedicated web page um, or website on your page for your annual fund. So that's where you can put some of those impact statements. You can add quotes from past donors about the impact that their donation has had. Um, your online don donation link, all those things can live there. And then try out using a multi-channel solicitation approach. Um, you could, week one, you would send your annual fund letter, week two, a follow-up email, week three, a phone call, and then week four, send a final follow-up email. And then try using email solicitations, like Amy mentioned with marketing. Um, E-newsletters um, with something like MailChimp are a really good way to get the word out about what you're doing and what's going on at your organization. And then continue that planning. You can keep taking that to the next step and updating your processes and procedures as you add more into your annual fund program. So now I think we're ready to move into our activity. Yeah, so who's excited to try some scaling? Yeah, <laughs> great. Um, okay, so we're gonna give you a couple of examples. Um, we're gonna have you guys work in groups and I think we're just gonna have them go by row. Yeah, so you just can be in your row if you, you know, want to break up from your row mate and find another row, that's fine also. If you're by, <laughs> if you're by yourself, you might want to go join another if row. Utah doesn't work, want to work together. Yeah, Utah doesn't want to work together, I know, over there. Uh, Megafer wants to, they've broken up already. <laughs> um, so go ahead and go find some um, mates in your row. We have a couple of sample museums up here. Uh, a small museum, a medium museum, in a large museum, we'll probably stick to the small and medium museum mostly. If you guys are like dying to try the next step thing, um, let me know and I'll give you the big museum example. Um, so go ahead, get in your rows. I'm gonna give you the first example and then we'll pass out using that uh, scaling worksheet that you were given. We, I actually have a sample one of the next one that I filled out for you to, to help you a little bit, but. So the first best practice recommendation, oop, I'll give you guys a minute. And just so you know, you're gonna use your scaling worksheet for this, but I have a ton have of extras so, so you can play, you can take one with you. <laughs> okay, so our first best practice recommendation that we are going to work on scaling based on the resources that I'm gonna give you in our sample museum is um, the best practice recommendation that AIC puts out, which is the American Institute of Conservation, that you must have your temperature and humidity into, into a certain range. Um, so we're gonna talk about how we can scale that and make it practical for us um, or for our fake museums here. And uh, we'll, we'll go and hand out stuff um, and yeah, we'll get started. All right, do you guys wanna pass out? What are we, what are we handing out? So this is the sample one. Oh, okay.
wonder if we ought to. We'll just, or the next two, we'll just have them use the basic sheet. That's good. Yeah, I think that's. Okay, so just to clarify real quick for everyone, the museum that I handed out to you guys, that is your museum now. You all work at that museum. Um, they're all barbecue themed, so it's. <laughs> um, so we're going to try to scale the recommendation for that museum. We did hand out a little sample of uh, how I kind of filled out the one side of the sheet. Feel free to to ignore that or not. Um, and we'll come back in about uh, maybe five or so minutes and talk about what sort of, how you guys are scaling this recommendation. So continue. What? Yes, you can, yeah, you, you, can, can have have you can have 10 minutes. We may just end up doing one anyway. Yeah. I mean, 10 minutes, we go until three. Four. We go until three. three. But we'll want to leave at least 10 or yeah. 15 minutes for questions. Well, we can give them 10 for the first one and then, because it's probably, they'll be faster at it, right? Like yeah. Second time around. Okay. So we can just do the Metula as the next one, and then we can leave off the social media one. That's fine. Are you sure? Let's see how far we get. Yeah. Let's, we'll put the here. <laughs> I think the Met Gala was just in my head because I watched Ocean's 8. <laughs> it's a good one. I'm into it. Like, I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
I honestly didn't see it. So, I believe you. Maybe it's clocked now. I mean, they left when the activity started. They didn't want to be so funny. Yeah, so. right. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. Does that mean it's us? I was talking her through it and we had just gotten done talking about logic and all this stuff and she's like I would love to, like if I could see it like here's the resources and here's what you do sort of thing like so yeah, I was like oh great. yeah like I said in the email like I'm definitely going to start using this it's awesome I just got my core online alright <laughs> You want to give them like a one minute warning or two minute warning? That'll be three thirty. Yeah. So two minute warning, and then we're gonna have you guys share back. So you might want to pick who's gonna talk for you too. Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, so we are going to do a little bit of reporting back out of what you guys thought you might do to scale down this recommendation. We are recording this session, so unfortunately I have to have everybody talking to this microphone and they didn't have a free one for me, so I'm not going to trip. We'll see how it goes. Um, so I'm going to walk. You might have to meet me halfway because of the cord situation. Um, I'll start. I'm going to pick on Megan over there first. <laughs> what did you guys decide for your scaling? So we decided that the first thing that we needed to do was to look at these standards to see whether or not they were reasonable for our area. Um, I'm actually, uh, our, our museum is in Missouri. I'm imagining it's quite humid. I'm bringing my experience being in the West, a uh, very uh, unhumid environment, and there's no way that we can meet national standards. So what, what's important to us is to figure out a standard that our um, museum can meet in the environment in which it exists and to try to maintain it um, as smoothly as possible and consistently as possible rather than meet this national standard that was created backy somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is that how, that's how we would start. That's great. So I think in order to make my life easier with this court, I'm going to take a couple of volunteers who might want to share how they decided to scale. And we will have a couple other examples to, to do as well. So you can share some others as well. Who wants to share how they scaled? Their, ooh, all right, right over here. Okay. Hello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> uh, so um, we decided that... Um, Oh, sorry, we have um, um, the Missouri Cattlemen's Association Historical Society. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So um, we, they have a small budget. They have a $75,000 budget. They're only open, I think, three days a week. Um, the museum is located um, on a historic farm, right? And um, so there is a lot, there, there's outdoor space and only three employees. Okay, so we said we would, um, uh, how would we scale? So we need to, we need a monitor um, that will monitor the humidity and uh, we would purchase that. And in the meantime, sources that we have available are we can move things away from windows uh, in terms of uh, keeping things out of sunlight uh, to preserve them and do have a volunteer do daily monitoring and recording of temperatures and humidity. Uh, and that's what we come up with. Okay, thank you. That's great, that was some good, good way to use, ways to use your resources. Um, all right, great. Come on, you're gonna have to meet me over here and not trip. Uh, well, we also have the Missouri Cattlemen's Association Historical Society uh, for our uh, museum example, and we came up with some of the similar ideas that you did of having real-time data log, or not a data logger, but a real-time, you know, uh, monitor that, you know, can be very inexpensive and purchased and either have a volunteer or one of the employees uh, just keep track of it uh, on a daily basis. But we also thought that since it said that this uh, 
building, the historical building, is located about three miles away from the Missouri Cattlemen's Association headquarters, well, that would suggest that they have a more modern building where the offices are located. And to separate out the collections, there are, it didn't say how many of the 25,000 are artifacts and how many are archives, but the less stable items like clothing, documents, they should be taken to the headquarters building, which if it's an office, probably has an HVAC system and modern control, and at least put in file drawers or something to be preserved, and only the uh, more stable art items like farm implements, metal, furniture, wood can stay out at the farm uh, for tours. And then perhaps, uh, even though the budget is small, the argument can be made that you know we need to start budgeting to climate control the farm building next year, the year after, uh, whenever the budget allows. That's awesome, thank you. All right, I'll do one more and then we will do our next example. So we actually had, well, actually, no, I shouldn't say that. Harry had an idea that I thought was a really good one. <laughs> that was sort of a kind of middling ground approach. Like we couldn't, we can't afford a full fancy data loggers HVAC system, but was to actually invest a little bit of money in maybe installing, if assuming you have some kind of HVAC system of installing maybe last year's model of something like a smart thermostat, like a Nest, so that those folks that are off-site can actually use their smartphone to monitor what the conditions are. You get reports on what the temperature and the humidity are inside the building as well as outside, so you can kind of predict if you need to be turning things up. Um, and then you also get those nice reports from those things that you could keep track of and whatnot. So I just thought that was a really good idea, so that's what we did at our museum. <laughs> oh, yes, okay, one more. <laughs> so one of the things we also talked about was to contact our local field services office in Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> so that we can get a proper assessment and some expert advice about what we could do, but also enlist their help in maybe training all those volunteers who are so interested in helping us in um, actually rehousing some of those things in you know, different storage or uh, learning how to collect data through these fancy systems that we have and um, yeah, use it as a, as a development project for our volunteers um, to also help them start to understand some of the challenges that the place has and get them involved in, in solving them. Always love the field service plug. All right, let's do okay. another example. Um, one more. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're, have to you have to come meet me up here. Well, we just wanted to mention that if you have an alarm system, you can very easily put places that you want to worry about water. And if you're out of the building that many days, you can set it so if the temperature goes below or higher than, that alarm company is going to notify you by phone. So you have a easy access yeah, to that. With the Nest system too, things like that. Perfect. Great. All right, let's go to our next example. So, um, I'm gonna let Jeanette take this one. Oh, she's not blinded. Um, this is a fun one. Okay, so these are just blanks, so you can fill out as much of the left-hand side as you would like, but imagine you are maybe invited to the Met Gala. That would be awesome. So, everybody knows, I think, about the Met Gala and what it is, so it's fashion's biggest night out. So if you want to scale that for your museum, what would you do? These are the key points about it. So how would you scale something like that to work at your organization? All right, let's, 
five, five or so minutes, and we'll come back and report out again. Friday, 
Tuesday night or something. They have where I got where I adapted the um, definition and the other thing that I talked about <laughs> from. So we're all properly credited and sourced up if we want to do this. Again. I, I think I put citations on most of my stuff, so that's all good. <laughs> well, I borrowed my stuff from your own stuff. Well, not from you. But yeah. From stuff we had. Yeah, from my HS. Okay, this is your two-minute warning. Okay, who wants to share how they're going to do the Met Gala at the Cattlemen Association or the, the, your Arthur Bryant Museum? Oh, okay. Okay, so our idea of scaling down the Met Gala for the Cattlemen's uh, Museum there is um, one of the big things about the Met Gala is it's about dressing up, right? And another big thing is celebrities and possibly probably drinking right okay so two things that people love is dressing up and drinking um, <laughs> it's true <laughs> so um, we our idea for it was to have like a um, a dance or some sort of event where people would dress up as cowboys or old west or whatever um, and we would invite local food guys local celebrity pitmasters or the cattlemen's since you're kind of associated with them anyways um, and they would come and you'd have a barbecue and an Old West type festival thing with food and music. And so you probably need a lot of volunteers, but it seems like we've got some volunteers. So yeah, that's great. 
That sounds fun. I would go to that. So um, does anybody else want to share any ideas? Hey, we had the uh, the Arthur Bryant Museum, which is a mid-sized museum, which I th don't think has been brought up yet, so I'll just give you a little background. It's got a uh, just shy of a million-dollar budget. It's got 50 staff. That includes a um, uh, development staff, um, but they don't have a lot of volunteers, which I think is probably true for a lot of corporate museums. Um, so what we came up with was not dissimilar to the small museum example that we just had, but... Uh, um, so the, the purpose uh, or the outcomes was money and publicity, um, which is I think what everybody wanted out of it. And then the parts that we thought we could use from the Met Gala was celebrities um, and a fashion as well. And we thought barbecue aprons didn't have an annual theme for that, that they could um, do and maybe do a fashion show with, with those. Um, the resources that we have are the development staff, so it's kind of their show. And as far as volunteers, we thought, well, perhaps since it is a corporate museum, we could access retired employees. And that might be as a one-off um, sort of thing, that's something that they could get behind. And then uh, next steps, well, we thought uh, developing a calendar plan for probably a year out um, uh, to the steps, and then also to really start focusing on the, on the guest list right away. Great. Does anybody else have one? I'm going to go in the way back because I haven't heard from them yet. <laughs> Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, it's not anything bad. I mean, it's just not that exciting. Um, so we uh, did the Cattlemen's Association. Uh, so we thought, we didn't really go with the fashion angle of it. We just tried to incorporate something that would work for their organization. So we were thinking uh, steak, barbecue, uh, chuck wagon type event, um, maybe a competition of some sort. Um, we are assuming that a Cattlemen's Association would have a built-in um, network of, um, you know, restaurants, um, companies, meatpacking industry that would be able to provide donations of food, uh, probably some rubs and different meats for a raffle or silent auction, um, just trying to kind of probably have some dancing um, of some sort. Um, but, yeah, pretty low-key and not very not yeah not very yeah definitely not the Met um, trying to think if there was anything maybe reenactment to some degree uh, because it's a historic farm um, so yeah I think that was I think I hit all the high notes yeah. great these sound super fun I'm down I would also go to the Met too just in case anybody <laughs> is out there do you guys want to I'll go ahead and sure. <laughs> all right so oh so not sorry that was my teacher voice all right so not surprisingly we also had the uh, Missouri Cattlemen's uh, Museum, uh, Museum Historical Society. Um, I should uh, preface this with my first uh, career job was assistant archivist for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association in Chicago, so this is right up my alley. <laughs> um, so we actually decided to double down on the high haute couture. Uh, so we're thinking rhinestone cowboy in terms of fashion. <laughs> And uh, being in Columbia, in terms of uh, resources that are, are available, we were thinking uh, if there's a fashion and or design school at the University of Missouri, tapping into the students there for coming up with uh, fashion designs, and that could be part of their portfolio. Uh, so then it would help out the mission, it also help out uh, the community, the students with that. Uh, local celebrities, uh, we were thinking, um, you know, some of the leaders in business, um, reporters, news anchors from the local TV station, things that you would find that would be kind of considered quote-unquote celebrities in a, a market of that size. Um, and then just, yeah, I mean, purpose also too, as we were saying, fundraising and awareness. 
and I guess the, uh, the resources that we needed to make sure we could find is the space to have this event, because we're not going to have this in the barn that doesn't fit all the artifacts that we have, so we need to find a location to do this. And then hoping that um, if uh, the museum has a board or if the Candleman's group has a board, uh, that they would have connections to such celebrities in the community that we could tap into. Okay, one more, and then we're going to open up for questions. Well, we had the Cattlemen's Association Historical Society, too, and we didn't actually follow all the rules on this. <laughs> but <laughs> well, we, we had a great conversation, though. But um, to his point about finding a location to do it, I think, I think you just find the time of year to do it near the farm because it's such a, I mean, it's such a relevant to do some kind of barbecue outdoor event there at the site where people can then engage with the artifacts. And, and do that kind of thing. So I think that would be great. One of the things we talked about that didn't come up with everybody else, and some of the things we talked about came up with everybody else, but is like having people show up and dress up as a, a favorite type of person or a local celebrity or something. So they were, um, there was an idea about their, the library had had people dress up as their favorite Harry Potter. So maybe there is a local cowboy who or that someone who was a famous cowboy or whatever since it is Missouri I mean I don't know much about the Missouri history but maybe there were cowboys okay so um and then have that have that be a part of it too but I really like the idea of it being like having that competition element or something great well those are all awesome examples and I did want to open it up here at the end I don't think we only have like 10 minutes or so uh for questions this is all of our contact information by the way so um, feel free to grab that. And then I did want to open up if there are any questions about scaling, anything that um, you feel like we're, we're missing and that you might want to ask us about. Yeah. So the question is about the Poppy Project and explaining a little bit more about that. Sure. So before I left, um, I was told to bring it with me, and I didn't, so I'm sorry about that. Next time. Uh, so the idea behind it was uh, to collect one homemade poppy for every soldier from Ohio who died during World War I. So that's like 6,500 poppies. And to do it, we just created what you saw in the picture, a template, an explanation of why poppies are important, uh, the poem in Flanders Fields. Um, and we created a lesson plan that ties to the fourth grade curriculum, but can be adapted down or up, um, and made all of that available on our website and then pushed it out to like every Historical Society, Public Library, American Legion, DAR type group I could get my hands on and just ask them to make poppies and send them to me. And then for Veterans Day, uh, they'll all go on display as like a visual representation of the impact of World War I. Um, and the idea is that if you want to, you can like research the veteran from your town and write their name on the poppy. So you're learning about your town's connection to the war while also doing fun arts and crafts. Okay. Can you Absolutely. If if you want the material, email me and I will send it to you. Thank you. Any other questions out there? Anybody have a good example of something they have done at their institution, scaling down or up? 
go up here. Great, that's an awesome example. Sure, up here. We did a, a, a much smaller scale gala kind of thing. Um, we did a vintage style show. So we asked people out in the county to bring in their vintage clothing, their historic clothing from their families, attics and things, and um, created a style show out of that by researching the story and also the, the fashion. And we had children and adults and men and women, and, and it, was, it was so hugely popular. Um, we had 300 people come, it was wonderful. And it was board driven, so it was not um, so much of a burden on our staff, and that worked out real well. Make those board members work, right? <laughs> um, great. I don't know where we're at in for time, but okay, we have five minutes. So, any final thoughts or anything? Yeah. Well, I might like say at Point Inn, we had a huge cell phone. <laughs> we're being recorded. All right. Okay. <laughs> Um, with the Pony Express Museum in St. Joseph, Missouri, and we had a huge celebration for 150th in 2010. And I went after a grant because I didn't like the preempted film that we had at our facility. And then the CVB helped me, had 152 volunteers, and as of date, I have sold 25,000 videos that bring money into the museum, and I had very little cost in it. So I just wanted to say that was one way. And I will encourage you on that preparedness. Uh, we have a sprinkler system, and two years ago, a 20-inch line in my alley erupted, which looked like the river, which was coming into my building, and we have an archaeological dig, so we were paranoid. Thank God it was 9 in the morning. But the digitation, if you have a system, go back to the people who put your stuff in your facilities because this is a three different time growth process in this building. When I called them, they had just digitized it, could email it to me. We had been an hour and a half trying to find the shutoff. They knew where it was. So I'm just telling you, if you've done additions to your buildings, please do your check-in because it's, it's an important thing. Always important. I, I love emergency planning, so. <laughs> Um, great. Yeah, one. I have a question. Yeah. Um, I'm fairly new to museum operations and all that. Is there a source or some sources for best practices to, for any size museum that we can tap into to kind of get ideas if we don't already have some? Um, so I'm going to answer for collections care stuff, and then I'll pass it over to you guys. Um, so 
this part of the reason why we were doing this session is because a lot of the best practices that you see out there are just here's what it is your job to figure it out right so that's kind of why we wanted to to do this session um to give you guys some tools to actually make that happen but there are some really good resources um aic the american institute of conservation has a lot of information about best practices for collections care they have a co connecting to collections webinar series that are all free so you can check out it's on more topics than you can even imagine um, so that's a good place to go look and a lot of those are really kind of budget friendly tips um, it, it is kind of a lot to sort through so it can be a little overwhelming if you don't already kind of have something in mind um, to look it up uh, something else as far as collections care uh, is working with uh, someone to come in and do an assessment of your site is, is helpful in helping you figure out what those priority areas might be um, so that you can figure out which of those millions of webinars might be appropriate for you to check out. American Institute of Conservation has you know, some resources. They're connecting to collections webinar series is a good one for tips about collections care. So I'll give a plug for AASLH STEPS because the STEPS program has um, standards kind of across a lot of those different disciplines. Um, so that's one resource to look at. Um, AAM also has um, a good resource library um, through their online site. And then again, like um, Samantha and Megan pointed out earlier, um, your local field services office um, in the state that you're in, um, if you, Let's see, so currently AASLH is updating their website and there will be a listing of field services offices. Um, it's not up currently, so if you don't know who the field services um, person is or office is in your area, um, get in contact with one of us and we'd be glad to put you in touch with whoever your field services provider would be. Great. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think we're right around the, the time mark. So thank you, everybody. This was great. And come, come hang out with your field services officers. <laughs>